this is UU Talk Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, and you're listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. We cannot accept that the murderous course of history is irremediable, and that the human spirit that believes in itself cannot influence the most powerful force in the world. The experience of recent generations convinces me that only the unbending human spirit, taking its stand on the front line against the violence that threatens it, ready to sacrifice itself and to die proclaiming not one step further. Only this inflexibility of the spirit can be the real defender of personal peace, universal peace, and all humanity. Well, here I am again, as Utah Phillips... Steve Baker, the engineer, here once again. And that was the music of Jimmy and Nancy Borsdorf. The, the words that I intoned at the beginning were from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and well said, well meant. Well, I woke up this morning. Now, I know that this program is being broadcast in different parts of the country in different uh, uh, times of the year. So I don't know when you're listening to this. It's a bright Easter Sunday, a beautiful Easter Sunday, and a spring day here in Nevada City, California. The the state home of the self-involved is declared by the governor, the birthplace of exotic suffering. I got up this Easter morning, this beautiful spring day, as I say, turned on the radio, and I listened to the war news. Well... Just got to do something. It may seem a little grim on a beautiful Easter morning, but I could say I've got to do something. Here's a piece that young hip-hop singer, songwriter, brilliant mind, Ani DeFranco, uh, put together around a story I told some years ago about traveling with my son in New England. I have just left your fighting sons in Korea. They have met all tests there, and I can report to you without reservation they are splendid in every way. kids have been little, they've always known that I've vanished from their lives periodically. And um, they uh, never really had the idea of what it is that I do. What do I do? If I don't know, why should they? never traveled together at all, you know, since the kids have been little, they've always known that I've vanished from their lives periodically. And, um, they, uh, never really had the idea of what it is that I do.
yeah, Brandon, the, the 14-year-old, he got to travel with me during the summer. But we got a chance to talk to each other as adults, you know, as, as uh, well as adults, instead of just, just father and son. society. <laughs> and I said, well, I've never been asked that, you know. Now, don't listen to the radio and don't talk to me for half an hour while I think about it. So we drove and talked. We were on Highway 1 because it was pretty and close to the water. Got up toward the main border and there was a picnic area off to the side, some picnic tables. It was a bright, clear day. So I pulled into their parking lot we sat down at the picnic tables, and I said, now, sit down, uh, I want to tell you a story. I thought about it. And we sat down, I said, you know, I was over in Korea. And he said, uh, yeah, I've always wondered about that. Did you, did you shoot anybody? And I said, as honestly as I could, I don't know. But that's not the story. I said, this is what I'm telling you. I was up at the up at Kumari Gap there by the Imjin River. There were about 75,000 Chinese soldiers on the other side, and they all wanted me out of there with every righteous reason that you could think of. I had long since figured out that I was the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time for the most specious of reasons. But there I was. My clothing was rotting on my body. Every exotic mold in the world was attacking my clothing and my person. My boots had big holes in them from the, from the rot. I wanted to swim in the Imjin River get the, that feeling of death, that feeling of rot off of me. The Chinese soldiers were on the other side. They were swimming. They were having a wonderful time. But there was a rule, a, a regulation against swimming in the Imjin River. I thought that was foolish. But then a young Korean fellow carpenter, for us as a carpenter by the name of Yun Sukhan, all of his family had been killed off in the, in the war. But he said to me in what English he had, you know, when we get married here, young married couple moves in with the elders they move in with the grandparents but there's nothing growing everything's been destroyed there's no food so the first baby that's born the oldest the old man goes out with a jug of water and a blanket and sits on the bank of the Imjin River and waits to die sits there until he dies and then will roll down the bank and into the into the river and his body will be carried out to the sea and we don't want you to swim in the Imjin River because our elders are floating out to sea. That's when it began to crumble for me, you know. That's when I 
Well, I ran away, and not, not just from that. I ran away from the, the, the blueprint for self-destruction I had been handed as a man for ex- violence in excess, for sexual excess, for racial excess. We had a commanding officer who said of the GI babies um, fathered by GIs and Korean mothers that the Korean government wouldn't care for us. They were in these orphanages. And, and he said, well, as sad as that is, someday this will really help the Korean people because it'll raise the intelligence level. That's what we were dealing with, you know. So I ran away. I ran down to Seoul City, down toward ASCOM, not to the Army. I ran away to a place called the Korea House. It was a Korean civilians uh, reaching out to GIs to give them some better vision of who they were than what we were getting up in the divisions. And they hid me for three weeks. Uh, late one night, because they didn't have any clothes that would fit me. Late one night, it was a stormy, stormy night. Rain falling in sheets. Uh, they, uh, they, I could go out, because they figured nobody would see me. We walked through the mud and the rain. Seoul City was devastated. And they took me to a concert at the AWA Women's University. Uh, large auditorium with shell holes in the ceiling and the rain pouring through the holes. And Clyde lights on the stage hooked up to car batteries. This wasn't the USO. This was the Korean Students Association. The person that they had invited to sing, I was the only white person there. The person they invited to sing was Marianne Anderson, the great black operatic soprano who had been on tour in Japan, you see. There she was, singing Oh Freedom, and nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And I watched her through the rain coming through the ceiling and thought back to Salt Lake. And my father, Sid, who ran the Capitol Theater, was a movie house, but it had been an old vaudeville house, and he wanted to bring live performances back to the Capitol. In 1948, he invited Marianne Anderson to come and sing there. I remember we went to the, to the train station to pick her up and took her to the biggest hotel in town, the Hotel Utah, but they wouldn't let her stay there because she was black. And I remember my father's humiliation and her humiliation as I saw her singing there through the rain. And I realized right then, I said, Brendan, right then I knew that it, it was all wrong, that it all had to change, and that that change had to start with me. Why do your warships sail on my waters? Why do your death bombs fall from my sky? Why do you burn my farm and my town down? I've got an old friend, I've got to know why. What makes your ships haul death to my people? Nitro blockbusters, big cannons and guns Why can't your ship bring food and some clothing? I've got to know, yes, I've got to know why I've got to know, yes, I've got to know, friend Hungry lips ask me wherever I go Comrades and friends all falling around me 
I've got to know, yes, I've got to know What good work did you do? I'd like to ask you To give you my money right out of my hand I built your big house to hide from my people Why do you hide so? I've got to know Why can't we spend more to build homeless shelters? Why are the homeless here anyhow? Fortunes are building on greed and on killing. I've got to know, yes, I've got to know now. I've got to know. Yes, I've got to know, friend Hungry lips ask me wherever I go Comrades and friends all falling around me I've got to know, yes, I've got to know You keep me in jail, you lock me in prison Your hospital's jammed and your crazy house full What made your cop hurt my unarmed peace worker? I've got to know, yes, I've got to know why My friends are dying from AIDS and from cancer The big money goes where your death missiles fly Built by good workers, paid by war taxes I've got to know, yes, I've got to know why I've got to know, yes, I've got to know, friend Hungry lips ask me wherever I go Comrades and friends all falling around me I've got to know, yes I've got to know When I got back from Korea I was so tied down tight about what I'd seen and done I didn't know if I could ever live in the country again I just rode the freight trains for a couple of years drunk most of the time I fetched up in the roper yards of the Denver Rio Grande and Western Railroad I had come back to Salt Lake my home There was a house down by the Roper Yards called the Joe Hill House, started by Ammon Hennessy, one of the Catholic workers, one of Dorothy Day's people, the Catholic worker movement from the, the Great Depression. Ammon Hennessy, wiry little guy. I met him in his 69th year. Ammon was a Catholic, anarchist, pacifist, vegetarian, draft dodger in two world wars, tax refuser, one-man revolution in America. I think that about covers it. Right off, he said, you know, you love the country. You come into town with these beautiful songs about marvelous people and places you've been. You know you love the country. You just can't stand the government. Now get it straight. He quoted Mark Twain, loyalty to the country always, loyalty to the government when it deserves it. An essential distinction I had been neglecting. And then he had to deal with my violence, my capacity for violence. I... I was violent in a lot of different ways, a lot of violent emotions and a lot of violent behavior. 
But he had to deal with that with everybody in the house, and he never called the cops. He was an anarchist. He dealt with, with everything right there by himself, besides which if you're always calling the cops, nobody would use the place. He reached out and embraced that violence. He said, you've got to be a pacifist. I said, what's that? He said, well, I can't give you a book like about Gandhi. I can't give you a list of things, of principles, that if you sign it and subscribe to it, boom, you're a pacifist. He said, it's kind of like being an alcoholic. Uh, eventually, if the booze isn't going to kill you, you got to be able to acknowledge you're an alcoholic and then sit in a circle of, of people that are like that and put your hand up in the air and say, my name is Bruce, I'm an alcoholic. And then to begin to deal with the alcoholic behavior, have it described to you and deal with it. And it's never going to change. You could be dry for 20 years and you're still going to be an alcoholic. But it's going to save your life. And you're all going to be fighting against that next drink every day of your life. So it's the same with a pacifist. You've got to be able to do the same thing. Put your hand in the air and say, I acknowledge my capacity for violence. And then you're going to deal with that violent behavior every minute, in every situation, every day for the rest of your life. But it'll save your life. So I said, okay, I'll try that. Ammon said, it's not enough. I said, oh. He said, you know, you were born a white man in mid-20th century industrial society. You came into the world armed to the teeth with an arsenal of weapons. The weapons of privilege, sexual privilege, racial privilege, economic privilege. You want to be a pacifist. It's not just giving up your hard, angry thoughts. It's not just giving up guns and knives and fists and clubs. You're going to have to give up the weapons of privilege and go forth into the world completely disarmed. That's hard. Ammon's been gone 20 years, and I'm still at it. But... If there's a worthy struggle in my life, I, I suppose that's the one. Now, I'd always wanted to make a song for him in Hennessy. Not about him, I don't think he would have wanted one, but something mulched up out of his thought. An anarchist song. Ammon once told old Judge Ritter, when he was taken to jail for uh, uh, picketing illegally, he did a lot of that, he never pled innocent or guilty, he pled anarchy. And Judge Ritter would say, hell, what's, what's an anarchist? And Ammon would say, in his quiet way, why, an anarchist is anybody who doesn't need a cop to tell him what to do. Sort of a fundamentalist anarchist. Well, listening to him and watching him, I learned that anarchy is not a noun. It's an adjective. And it describes the tension between moral autonomy and political authority, especially in the area of combinations whether they are to be voluntary or coercive. The most coercive combinations are those formed through force. But you see, force is the weapon of the weak. The new ruling party is holding the aces. The rest of the cards are all missing faces. I'm sorry I can't know you today. What can one say? I will not obey. Give us your sons and give us your daughters. No one is safe or immune from the slaughter. How indifference makes them rage. What can one say? I will not obey. 
National Guard or freedom fighters, all houses belong to cigarette lighters. But who hides in the smoke? What can one say? I will not obey. Better perhaps to perish outside of the bunkers where our generals hide. I turn away and spit. What can one say? I will not obey. Give us the minds of your children to learn the substance of books we have not yet burned. But can they read the sky for rain? What can one say? I will not obey. Soon all tyrants will feel our impatience. We choose to create our own combinations. I was always willing to agree. What can one say? I will not obey. The essence of contract is agreement, not coercion or obedience. And agreement is sacred. What can one say? I will not obey. There are so few wars of people's liberation, for the people have so seldom risen. Only the armed faction, listen, the armed faction lies. They recreate the state through their action. When the people rise, it is not they, but the state which dies. I sing this song for the prisoners' release, most of all now for the new state police. You see the guns have changed hands. Again, what can one say? I will not obey. Well, I always love talking and singing about Emmon Hennessy. Like I say, a beautiful spring day. Flowers are up, the daffodils are a riot. Turn on the radio. It's the anniversary of the resurrection of the Prince of Peace, and I hear the war news. I've always been fascinated with the Spanish Civil War, the war against Franco and the fascists, the opening volley of the Second World War. And... I think the reason for that was that my, some of my earliest recollections when I was a little kid is hearing my parents talk, some, sometimes very loudly, about that, um, about that war. That was my first war news. Then, of course, the whole Second World War. The war news was in the newsreels, uh, Bataan, Corregidor, Wake Island, all the movies that we saw. My grandfather, Simon Bialobjewski Cohen, my step-grandfather, uh, a Polish-Russian Jew, bent forward with his ear pressed against a cloth on the front on the front of the old radio, listening for war news from Europe. Then, of course, the war news in Korea. Listened to it, and then I had the opportunity to send some home myself, all the way up through Vietnam the Gulf, all the little wars in between. Folks, I have spent my whole life listening to war news. Listening to war news. Now, there's got to be a better way to go about doing these things. I do not want to spend the rest of my life listening to war news. How about you? And I refuse to believe that this violence is a genetic predisposition, that this is just the way we are. That is a hopeless position, and I refuse to live without Hope. There's a song I was gifted with from a hill-crazed Mississippi poet and carpenter and the last of the true shakers. 
When I was a young man, my father said to me, Son, when you come of age, a carpenter you'll be. So when I come of age, I run away from home, saying, Father, I must lay down your hammer and your nails for the tools of my own. Now I live in the forest where the wild deer run, and I never give a thought to my father's home. When I was a young man, my father said to me, Son, when you come of age, a soldier you will be. So when I come of age, I run away from home, saying, Father, I must lay down your sword and your gun for the weapons of my own. Now I live in the forest where the wild deer run, and I never give a thought to my father's home. Well, now there is a young man who calls himself my son. He'll step up and ask me, Daddy, show me the way you come. And so I made this little song so I can plainly see that I don't look like a goddamn fool when he walks away from me. To live in the forest where the wild deer run and never give a thought to his father's home. Yeah, oh, but a long time ago, Back during the Second World War, there were conscientious objectors. Well, in every war, there have been conscientious objectors, people who refused to shoot other people because they were ordered to. COs went through hell during the Second World War. A number of them, over a hundred of them, volunteered to become smoke jumpers in the western forest up in Montana. They were trained at Camp Menard, and they climbed aboard those Ford tri-motors they called a, a tin goose. They jumped out into the into the wilderness to fight forest fires. They have a convention every year, those CO smoke jumpers, the civilian public service volunteers. They asked me to invite me out to sing one time, but I couldn't make it, so I sent them a poem instead. I sent them this poem. It started out to be a song, turned into a poem. Uh, it, it's made up, constructed out of conversations with those uh, CO smoke jumpers, called peace jumpers. War came... The young men all stood in line to go, but we, when asked to take the oath, simply answered, No. For what we said was simple, though said by just a few, I will not shoot another man because I'm ordered to. No wonder some were puzzled or took it as a joke when CEOs rode and volunteered to jump into the smoke. You said what we were doing could prove that we were men. We had, and didn't need your words to prove it once again. You thought that we were renegades and the training much too hard. We packed your words in our duffel bags and left for Camp Menard. But you shunned us in the cookhouse and cursed us to our souls. Your words were blurred with heat and sweat as we practiced landing rolls. You said we were too yellow to jump with airborne troops. We rolled your words in our shroud lines when the rigor packed our chutes. We turned aside your hatred and blunted your abuse. We held your words in clenching teeth and climbed into the goose. You told us we were cowards, called each of us a liar. We hooked your words to the static line and jumped into the fire. And all you said hung over us as we saw our shoots deploy. We took your words to the fire line to save and not destroy. You said we never understand what war was all about. We threw your words on the roaring flames and put the fire out. Ain't it fine to have our little babes around us Our old TV and our coffee pot And all of the other things we've got all safe and alone 
with no one there to hound us. New shingle roof, no little rain can drown us. We've never seen a lawn so green, and we cut it off with a big machine, and that's all right. Our yard and fence around us. Ain't it fine to have so much to hang on to? They cash our checks at the grocery store. We don't have to know who lives next door. We don't have to thank if we don't want to. Ain't it fine to know our country is the best? Though other people may think and read, we know that all we really need is the Bible and the Reader's Digest. Look outside, somebody's bombs are falling. And as they bend and break the sky, we haven't time to wonder why the last thing we hear, our little babes are calling. Ain't it fine to have our little babes around us? Our old TV and our coffee pot and all of the other things we've got all safe and alone with no one there to hound us. Kenny Hall, playing something a little bit more subdued than the usual intermission music, but uh, that's what the situation requires. You know, you have to put up with a lot from me, so let's try this, as long as we're going to talk and sing about peace, uh, from my old friend Peter Alsop, and then a song from somebody you all know and something you can sing along with, and you know how much I love for you to do that even though I can't hear you. Peter Alsop. I'd rather have a piece of chicken. Too bad. Chickens for peace, we're chickens for peace, and we don't want to fry. Chickens for peace, we're chickens for peace. One little war, and we're chicken pot pie. Chickens for peace, we're chickens for peace, and no one respects a chicken who bakes.
have all the flowers gone The girls have picked them everyone Oh, when will you ever learn? Oh, when will you ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing Where have all the young girls gone? Long time ago Where have all the young girls gone? They've taken husbands, everyone Oh, when will you ever learn? Oh, when will you ever learn? Where have all the young men gone? Long time passing. Where have all the young men gone? Long time ago. Where have all the young men They're all in uniform, oh, when will you ever learn, oh, when will you ever learn? I spend a lot of time these days going to demonstrations and vigils talking to people who support the war. It can be pretty threatening, but I always find there are people there, and I don't mean policemen, but there are people there who will protect you. I don't go there to shout or to lecture, but to ask questions, real questions, questions I really need answers to. When I joined the Army, It was kind of like somebody that I had been brought up to respect, wearing a suit and a tie, maybe a little older, in my neighborhood. Think about yourself in your neighborhood and this happening to you. He walked up to me, put his arm around my shoulder and said, See that fellow on the the corner there? He's really evil and has got to be killed. Now, you trust me, you'll go do it for me, won't you? The reasons are a little complicated, but uh, I won't bother to explain, but you go and do it for me, will you? Well, if somebody did that to you in your neighborhood, you'd think it was foolish. You wouldn't do it. Well, what makes it more reasonable to do it on the other side of the world? That's one question. Well, now hook it into this. If I was to go down into the middle of your town and bomb a house and then shoot the people coming out in flames, the newspapers would say, homicidal maniac. The cops would come and they'd drag me away. They'd say, you're responsible for that. The judge would say, you're responsible for that. The jury would say, you're responsible for that. And they would give me the hot squatter. They'd put me away for years and years and years, you see. But now exactly the same behavior, sanctioned by the state, could get me a medal and elected to Congress. Exactly the same behavior. I want the people I'm talking to to reconcile that contradiction for themselves and for me. The third question, well, I take that one a lot to peace people. There's a lot of moral ambiguity going on around here. Peace people who say, 
well, we got to support the troops that wear the yellow ribbon and wrap themselves in the flag. Say, we don't want what happened to the Vietnam vets to happen to these vets when they come home, people getting spit on. Well, I think it's terrible to spit on anybody. I think that's a consummate act of, of violence. And I, it's a terrible mistake, and I'm really sorry that happened. But what did happen? Song Mai happened. My Lai happened. The defoliation of a country happened. Tons of pesticides happened. 30,000 MIAs in Vietnam happened. And it unhinged some people, made them real mad. And what really, really made them mad was the denial of personal responsibility, saying, I was made to do it. I was told to do it. I was doing my duty. I was serving my country. Well, we've already talked about that. Now, it is morally ambiguous to wrap yourself in the flag and wear those ribbons. And it borders on moral cowardice. I don't mean to sound stern. Well, yes, I do. But what, did the, what does the Nuremberg Declaration say? There's no superior order that can cancel your conscience. Nations will be judged by the standard of the individual. Look, the president makes choices. The Congress makes choices, the Chief of Staff makes choices, the officers make choices. All those choices percolate down to the individual trooper with his finger on the trigger, the individual pilot with his thumb on the button that drops the bomb. If that trigger doesn't get pulled, if that button doesn't get pushed, all those other choices vanish as though they never were. They're meaningless. So what is the critical choice? What is the one that we've got to think about and get to? And friends, if that trigger gets pulled, if that button gets pushed and that drop bomb falls, and you say, I support the troops, you're an accomplice. I don't want to be accomplice, do you? And I don't want to dehumanize anyone. I don't want to take away anybody's humanity. Humans are able to make moral decisions, moral ethical decisions. When we tell the trooper who pulls the trigger or the soldier who turns the wheel that releases oil into the Persian Gulf that they're not responsible, just following orders, just doing their duty, have no choice, bypassing them, making them a part of the machine, we deny them their humanity their responsibility for their actions and the consequences of those actions. Look, I've been a soldier. I don't want any moral loophole. I need to take personal responsibility for my actions. And if we don't learn how to do this, we're going to keep on going to war again and again and again. Well, a final question. When I'm at these war support demonstrations, the question I ask most is, you think that people on the other side of the world need to be killed on the strength of voices coming out of a box. Sounds pretty silly when you put it that way, doesn't it? I want to know from the person standing in front of me, what part of you is responding to those voices? Can you tell me? What makes you feel that way? Who in you are those voices talking to? Who's really answering and why? I hear those voices. I have those feelings. The violence is in me, too. Well, of course, I put that together during the, the Gulf War, but the question has never changed, do they? We're going to have to make some tracks here pretty quick. I want you to hear first Chris Chandler, one of the great performing poets, along with Trout Fishing in America, and then Carl Oglesby, one of the founders of SDS, one of the architects of the Port Huron Statement, 
few few people know he's a singer, but he made this song questioning whether he was going to be able to stay in the country any longer. And then we're going to finish with Victor Jara, one of the founders of the People's Song Movement in Chile, who was killed off, machine-gunned in the arena by, uh, by the Pinochet, Pinochet fascists. He's going to be singing El Martillo, which is the old almanac singers if I had a hammer. I think all one has to do to really understand Elliot's The Wasteland is just watch too much television. I mean, who are these people? And tonight, as I drown my sorrows in a beer ad, I think of old Tom Stern's Elliot, of Yates, of Moliere. What would they have made of it all? I wonder if they would be today's poets, the ones writing, This Bud's for you. I love you, man. It don't get no better than this. You know, the classics. Or would they write the sitcoms themselves? Or maybe, What Beast Slouches Towards Melrose Place, Waiting to be Born? In the books that I've been reading They say exactly what they mean They don't say uh, 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 uh They don't stutter They don't mutter They don't repeat themselves They don't repeat themselves They know exactly what they're doing They know why who are these people? It is so uncool to be aware. Where do they live? Nobody wants to act like they're hearing old news for the first time. They have so much to offer. And clearly it's old they news. They have so much That the give. world's going to hell in a glove compartment. Who are these people? The only question that remains is, what do they know? Will I look good at the way? I don't know. Maybe I could act more like these people. Who are they in this movie? In the movies I've been watching, everyone's beautiful. I could dress down. Unless they're ugly, then they're really ugly. I mean, you don't want to look like you're trying too hard to look casual. Acting like it all makes sense to be doing what they do. You don't want to act like you care that we blew they it. They don't act anything at all like me and you just gotta say have another drink that's what those people who would do who are these people you look great i look great where do they live we all look great i haven't met them in my travels never went to school with them it's last call where about these key minds with their perfect sentences and this is our last chance to look great all men collected so full of confidence My liver looks like the wetlands They're not sick unless they're dying My lungs burn like the they rainforest My blood TV. is as clean as New York City tap water so action But who can tell in this dim light? never get to sleep Have another drink, you look great Who are these people? What do they know that I don't know? A billion of my brain cells just went extinct. A billion more are on the endangered species list, but hey, that only means I've been fashionably dumbed down. Success can't be far from my grasp. That's what they promised on the infomercials. I used to love this life. 
But then life fell in love with death, and I fell in love with every cheap advertising come on that tells me it understands me and me alone. That only McDonald's knows of my vast appetite to devour the world. Only sports utility vehicles know of my secret desire to drive outside the lines. And only obsession knows of my desire to briefly know beauty until she goes into therapy and decides I've invaded her boundaries and gets a restraining order against me. Recycled perfumed pages of a glassy magazine and swim the random channels of remote control. Run a music marathon on late night radio. A family photo album of the people I don't know. Who are these people? Now do these people have sins? Where do they live? I somehow picture their sins gathering together in a roadhouse bar discussing me for purposes of marketing research. Who are these people? And jointly they decide they should hold a parade. What do they know? And they march down every main street on the planet. And all our sins ride on floats and wave to the gathering crowd. And the whole thing is televised. And I'm watching it from afar. And on one of the floats, that I, don't know. I recognize myself. And I have to ask, who are they? Who is this person? Suck 
upon a cherry I saw you stealing from my friend I'm staring at the sunshine standing here inside your door seems like I just don't belong Ahora tengo un martillo, 
y tengo una campana y tengo una canción que cantar por todo el país por todo el país martillo de justicia campana de libertad y una canción de Thank you very, very much for sticking with me on this one. There's some things we just got to get done. This has been you, Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, and you've been listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. From Sarah Teasdale. There shall come soft rains and the smell of ground, and swallows circling with their shimmering sound. Frogs will sing in the pools at night, and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on a low fence wire. And not one will know of the war, not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind neither earth nor tree if mankind perished utterly, and spring herself when she awoke at dawn would scarcely know that we were gone. <laughs> 